History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 103, Breaking the Binary. Last time, we discussed the building projects and domestic affairs of Artaxerxes III, primarily meaning his expansion of funeral facilities at Persepolis and his assassination. Artaxerxes III, and all but his youngest son, now Artaxerxes IV, were murdered by the third's favorite eunuch advisor, Bagoas, who I should probably start calling Bagoas the Elder. Much like the recent episode on slavery and labor in the Achaemenid Empire, this episode is going to cover a long-neglected topic in the podcast that I've just never had a great place to include. The reign of Bagoas as the puppet master behind Artaxerxes IV's throne provides some important evidence for the topic, and a good moment to explain the role of eunuchs in the empire. If you're surprised that I'm back to a cultural topic so soon after Artaxerxes' ascension, don't worry, so was he. But that also means we're in the endgame now. This is the last big culture topic for the Achaemenids. So here's your broad content warning for the day. Let's talk about sex. And I mean that from every angle, including some of the darker ones. But mercifully, that is not the focus this time. The preamble and disclaimer to this topic is pretty straightforward. Pun not intended, but very much present. I'm a straight cis man, and can only really experience anything from that perspective. We're also dealing with cultures 2,500 years removed from our own. They could only experience things from their own perspectives, too, 
and cultural understandings and expectations of gender and sexuality change dramatically over the course of a few decades, let alone millennia. Sexuality in particular has historically been perceived very differently from culture to culture. In modern Western culture, we are slowly but surely getting more open to sexualities like pansexual, asexual, and so on. But for most of recent history, it's really been boiled down to hetero, homo, or bi. Different, same, or both. With immense social pressure to conform to a heterosexual norm, and a general assumption that you would permanently align yourself with one of those three identities. This was not the case in many ancient cultures, where expectations for sexuality and sexual roles differed based on everything from age to social status to religious alignment to, yes, personal preference. Though, the higher the social status, the less that last one tended to matter. Binary assumptions about being one thing or the other were not nearly as prevalent in ancient history. Speaking of binary, let's talk about gender, a thing which is most definitely not binary. If that makes your temper rise, feel free to open your podcast player, hit the pause button directly below the picture of Farnakis blowing a kiss goodbye, and bug off into the sunset. Gender is without a doubt a social construct, that's why definitions of masculinity and femininity change so damn much. When I was in high school, people would toss around homophobic slurs or ask why you were wearing women's pants for clothes that the most transphobic bigots wear in public in 2023. And pants that my sister wouldn't be caught dead in because they're too tight and her generation is leaning towards baggy pants again for some reason. That's all within a decade. The ancient Spartans would think most modern men are womanly prudes for their reluctance to wrestle each other in the nude, and most ancient Greeks saw trousers as something emasculating. Ancient Egyptians of any persuasion loved their makeup. Pink used to be a color for boys, all children used to wear frilly dresses, whether or not women are supposed to wear their hair up or down, long or short, changes every three minutes, and so on and so on. Gender signifiers are even more fluid than gender itself. Simultaneously, we can hardly divorce gender and sex entirely. The two obviously tend to line up, and gender-affirming surgeries are important to many modern trans people for a reason. I will talk a bit about binary transition in the ancient Iranian world later, but there's actually much more to be said about the idea of non-binary or third gender in antiquity. This is likely due in part to the fact that anybody living a life accepted on the opposite end of the binary from their sex assigned at birth would probably go more or less unnoticed in the historical record. Just think about it, if everyone around someone recognized her as a woman, why would they ever comment on that? 
you know, whether it's a secret or not, their neighbors are going to look at them and say, oh yeah, she's just Anna from down the street. It's also definitely a result of vocabulary. Basically, all of the terminology we now associate with transgender people today was developed in the last century or so. It is extremely difficult to identify whether or not somebody described as not abiding by their initial place on the binary was strictly trans or some form of non-binary alignment without the language to do so. As a result, historians tend to be more willing to explore things in terms of not male, but also not female, rather than direct transition. It's even an issue of language itself. Like many languages today, many languages of the past had grammatical gender. To native English speakers, this whole concept is often baffling and frustrating. Linguists and grammarians are quick to emphasize that grammar is masculine and feminine, not male and female. This is because the two concepts are only barely related. True, words relating to men are generally in the categories described as masculine, and words relating to women are in the categories described as feminine. But in grammatically gendered languages, everything has a gender, and nobody really understands how those were assigned over time. Why is a chair feminine in Spanish? Who knows, and frankly, who cares? That's just how it works. The whole concept of calling these linguistic features genders comes from Indo-European languages, which historically grouped things together as masculine, feminine, or neuter. Crucially, for discussions like this, Neuter is basically always a category for non-human. That is, the it's of the world, rather than the gender-neutral they. Yes, I know some people go by it, it's, but I'm not doing a discourse on this podcast. Please. Some modern Indo-European languages have dropped neuter altogether, like Spanish and French. Others have mostly dropped grammatical gender altogether, like English, which really only preserves it in our third-person singular pronouns. And, uh, fun fact, the English second-person pronoun, you, actually originated as the second-person plural. Thou, thee, thy, and the rest of those old-timey th words actually started off as the singular forms of ye, which became you over time. That was actually connected to the royal we, where high-ranking people like kings and queens would refer to themselves with a plural pronoun. Referring to somebody as ye, the plural second person, was a sign of respect. Wild how respecting somebody else could change a plural word into a singular word. I'm sure there's no lessons to be learned from that. Some languages, like modern Persian, have dropped grammatical gender completely. 
usually with the exception of separate singular third-person pronouns for people and objects, which is only sort of a gender. Meanwhile, languages outside the Indo-European family tree sometimes have many more, often classifying animate and inanimate objects in their own categories, which linguists describe as grammatical genders. The indigenous Tuyuka language of northwestern Brazil has as many as 140 genders, depending on how you look at their system. My personal favorite is a family of indigenous languages in Australia that can be gendered as masculine, feminine, neuter, and vegetable. Both ancient Greek and old Persian were gendered languages, with masculine, feminine, and neuter. Though technically, Persian speakers were probably starting to slip and not bother with the gendered distinction in everyday speech by about the current point in our narrative. Akkadian, as used in Babylonia and Imperial Aramaic, only had masculine and feminine. While Elamites' genders were animate and inanimate. This is important because it means that none of our major sources could grammatically express the concept of a non-binary person without describing them in terms of the gender binary. It's where we get words like androgynous. Andro is Greek for man, gyno is Greek for woman, androgynous means man-woman. It's also important because it informs how I'm going to talk about our primary topic today. Ancient eunuchs would only ever have identified themselves as masculine, and I'm going to follow that lead. That brings me back to the eunuchs, who simultaneously serve as the prominent third gender category in Achaemenid history, but in an inherently masculine context. By definition, eunuchs are castrated men. However, this position as castrati also put them outside of many typical male gender roles. At least, their theoretical position as castrati. There is something of a significant school of thought that by the Achaemenid period, eunuch was as much a social rank as a physical description, and that many, or even most, Achaemenid and Hellenistic people called eunuchs were physically unaltered. There is evidence in both directions here. Obviously, the very description of an individual as a eunuch implies castration. On the other hand, the overemphasis, or maybe more accurately, overinterest in the Greek sources is commonly interpreted as one of many attempts by the empire's western neighbors to defame the Persians by stripping the imperial administration of its masculinity. There are also specific examples of individuals described as eunuchs who we would not expect to be literally castrated. The most obvious being Artabanus of Hyrcania, who murdered Xerxes. 
He is described as a eunuch by Justin, but Theseus, writing significantly closer to the events, talks about his sons. He uh, couldn't have sons if he didn't have balls. A son of Arsimes, the satrap of Egypt under Darius II, is also described as a eunuch in one Aramaic letter from his father's estate. That example has evidence both in favor of the metaphoric interpretation and against it. On one hand, it's difficult to imagine that the son of a noble would be castrated in the same manner as the minor bureaucrats. Most crimes that could potentially merit castration as a punishment were just death sentences for the Achaemenid nobility. On the other hand, if eunuch was a social status, it still doesn't seem like the son of a satrap would be demoted like that. It is also entirely possible that this son of Arsimes was some form of intersex, a topic I'll talk more about later on, but in some cases was also grouped with being a eunuch depending on how it presents. One potential explanation I've seen several researchers hint at but never commit to explicitly is actually very interesting to this discussion of gender nonconformity in ancient Persia. Several authors, including Irene Madrater and Cordula Schneg in their chapter on gender and sex in the Blackwell Companion to Achaemenid Persia, cautiously discuss eunuchs and effeminates. The implication being that some people described as eunuchs were feminizing men. To say what academic publications will not, because there's no evidence really at all beyond caution against assuming castration, the suggestion is that these so-called eunuchs were something along the line of what we would call trans women or femme non-binary in today's context. The other possibility with both Artabanus and the son of Arsimes is that they were castrated at some point in their lives, either as a punishment or more likely through wounds or accidents. Just think about ancient warfare for a minute. It had to have happened more often than most ancient authors would have liked to admit, and way more often than most historians would like to talk about. For my money, though, I expect most of the eunuchs in and around the Achaemenid court were literal. Several Greek authors mention how the Persians would specifically take young boys as captives while sacking a city, and Herodotus suggests that both Babylonia and several tribes in the Caucasus paid part of their tribute in hundreds of boys sent to the court each year. I don't know if you've met many literal boy children, but in my experience, they would make pretty poor royal servants or hard laborers. However, they are prepubescent, and thus castration has more of an effect on their development. Many of those perceived effects, such as being less aggressive and weaker muscles, would have more to do with cultural expectations in the long run, 
and only have been augmented by decreased testosterone. However, one thing castration undoubtedly accomplished was preventing reproduction. Removed from their families and cut, it was clear to administrative eunuchs that they would never have biological families of their own, meaning nobody to pass on their livelihoods and possessions to, and theoretically, only loyalty to the empire itself. Of course, that is the viewpoint propagated by people who were consumed by expectations of heirs and legacy. Whether they had a family or not meant little for eunuchs' ability to enjoy the creature comforts that wealth and status could bring to them, and that was the compensation for their castration. They became the administrative backbone of the empire. Many, possibly most, of the various scribes, clerks, supervisors, and functionaries that handled the little things like managing rations, recording royal dictates, taking notes on royal inscriptions, and enacting policy on the ground were eunuchs. Through this chain of command and administration, many rose to become highly placed advisors and members of the court for both the great kings and their satraps. And it is in that role that individual eunuchs are most visible in our narrative sources. Some fill the role of royal advisor more or less exclusively, such as Artoxeres the Paphlagonian, who initially acted as a liaison from the satrap of Cappadocia or Armenia to Darius II during his rise to power, and later befriended the rebel Megabyzus. Similar positions can be seen through the various eunuchs implicated in the plot to assassinate Xerxes, or the two who briefly intercepted Darius the Great and his conspirators on their way to kill Bardia, though different authors attribute different names to all of these people. Many of the most prominent eunuchs seem to have filled the role of royal cupbearer, which, despite its benign literal meaning, was a title translated in Akkadian as Sharashari, literally one who stands at the hand of the king. They were more like viziers than literal cupbearers. Traditionally, eunuchs were represented in Mesopotamian royal art as beardless men in the otherwise hairy courts, and many Achaemenid reliefs depict the king of kings with a beardless attendant carrying a sort of parasol or towel immediately behind the monarch. This is often interpreted as the Shah Rashari. It also casts an interesting, albeit difficult to assess, light on Nehemiah, the influential governor of Judea who got his start as a royal cupbearer. However, the Bible never explicitly identifies him as a eunuch and makes his appointment at court seem very temporary it is possible that he was more of a literal cupbearer than the more prestigious position of Sharashari. Despite wielding immense influence through these administrative positions, their administrative nature is often portrayed as directly related to the effeminate character of the eunuchs themselves. 
lacking the masculine gender norms to do things like rule territory or lead armies, they were treated as ideal candidates for quiet busy work. And yet, many of the same sources portray the exact opposite. This brings us back to Bagoas, who led an army in Egypt alongside Mentor of Rhodes, and a throwback all the way to episode 49, when the eunuch Matakis was sent by Xerxes in a failed attempt to raid Delphi during the invasion of Greece. For all their supposed effeminacy, we have several stories like this of eunuchs not only achieving high administrative roles, but also high commands in the military. Were these exceptions, like the small number of undoubtedly female commanders we've seen in the Queens of Caria, or typical duties for an important eunuch? We don't know. If they were typical duties, these military roles stand in contrast to one of the most heavily discussed responsibilities of Achaemenid eunuchs, their close association with royal women. While the kings and satraps were often surrounded by people of all sorts, from fellow warriors to eunuch clerks to their various wives and concubines and their female servants, the dukeshish are only ever described with two types of people in their own inner circle, aside from immediate family. They had handmaids and eunuchs. Eunuchs frequently served the princesses, royal partners, and queen mothers. They are also presented as the organizers, trainers, and supervisors of the concubine shows, when new women were presented to the great king to see if they caught his interest. That role is described explicitly in both Xenophon's Anabasis and the Book of Esther. I discussed in episode 92 how the mere hint of infidelity by the royal women could call the whole dynasty into question. Eunuchs obviously avoided such accusations. Even if they were sexually engaged with their mistresses, they wouldn't produce false heirs. However, the same could be said of handmaids. This is the most obvious manifestation of the view of court eunuchs as occupying a sort of third gender category. In this case, a sort of intermediate gender between extreme masculinity and femininity. They were simultaneously seen as men, still having access to the masculine ideal of being in command, but also effeminate enough to relate to and participate in women's daily lives. It's undoubtedly a sexist trope, but so is limiting women to purely soft power politics in the first place and excluding them from direct positions of leadership. This intermediary or androgynous gender is also reflected in the story of the Carian eunuch Hermotimos, who was captured as a boy, castrated, and pressed into a Caymanid service. It also goes back to the episode on slavery. Many eunuchs were functionally, if not legally, enslaved for all or most of their lives as de facto property of the Caymanid house. 
Hermotimos, in particular, rose above this, eventually gaining quite a lot of respect and trust in the court of Xerxes, who placed him in charge of all the royal children. Once again, we see a eunuch taking on a stereotypically feminine role as a child care provider, while simultaneously occupying a stereotypically masculine role as an important administrator, as royal children were very much part of the government apparatus. The intermediary gender concept also extends into sexuality. At least some eunuchs were engaged in sexual relationships with the great kings, and presumably other nobles in their own court. Internal sources do not reference this directly, but then again, they barely reference the king's wives either. There are, however, two specific examples referenced in Roman-era sources. The most famous example is Bagoas, or more specifically, Bagoas the Younger, as I'll call him until he's more established in the regular narrative. This Bagoas was supposedly seen as the pinnacle of eunuch beauty and a concubine to first Darius III, and then after Darius's defeat to Alexander the Great. Bagoas the Younger seems to have been both a lover and have held some sort of official position, though what exactly that was is hard to say. Many historians even doubt his existence, as he is primarily known from Quintus Curtius Rufus's History of Alexander the Great, which is the most fantastical of the major Alexandrian sources. Trust me, we'll get into all of that in a couple episodes. However, there is really very little reason to doubt Bogoas the Younger as a person who existed, even if the details are stretched by Curtius. Almost everything about him matches up with some other example from Achaemenid history. Most interestingly, his moment in the spotlight will come in the form of a dancing competition after one of the biggest disasters in Alexander's career, and Curtius claims that he was well-liked by the Macedonian soldiers, who demanded that Alexander kiss Bagoas as a reward for his victory in the dancing competition. There's pretty minimal overlap between the court traditions of Achaemenid Persia and Argead Macedon, but while men did dance, these sorts of displays are more often associated with women, or, apparently, eunuchs. It's presented almost as if Bagoas won the new king over through an impromptu concubine show in the vein of Esther or Aspasia the Wise. Bagoas is joined in this position as royal eunuch lover by Tiridates, a eunuch mentioned by the historian Aelian in his history of the aforementioned Aspasia. The details of this story are almost certainly invented, but with Bagoas and other Greek references as evidence, the concept itself is not. Tiridates was a favored lover of Artaxerxes II, who died some years after the Battle of Cunaxa. 
The king was left distraught and spiraling into depression from this loss, but found solace in Aspasia. Officially a concubine, but apparently neglected since her capture following the battle. Supposedly, she shared facial features with the late eunuch, and Artaxerxes fell for her. This once again speaks to both the Greco-Roman and Persian view of eunuchs as a third androgynous gender beyond male and female. Eunuchs were obviously not women, and even if some were more or less what we'd call transgender— some must have been, given that we're talking about tens of thousands of people. This is an era before both that social concept and reconstructive surgery. Yet, despite physical evidence to the contrary, they were not seen as men. This, perhaps, justified a certain degree of homosexual attraction, or even created a sort of sexuality that I kinda hope we don't have a word for, as an attraction to castrati. Whether or not a justification for homosexuality would have been necessary is something I'll cover toward the end of this episode. From here, we go broader, into general statements made by ancient historians about the Persians as a whole, rather than specific examples and this does get into a rather interesting issue that arises with the question of a third gender as a socially accepted institution, that being the question of sexuality and its origins. You'll be hard-pressed to find a genuine sexuality researcher who believes that sexual preference is a conscious choice. But aside from identities like pansexuality or asexuality as all and nothing, so many of our modern discussions of sexuality and sexual identity are wrapped up in a gender binary, even for non-binary people. In part, this is sort of because you can still fundamentally describe someone's sexual attractions, in terms of physical traits associated with sex or personality traits associated with gender. But what do we do with a relatively large group of people who fall outside of those definitions, placed in a third category with genuine physical, psychological, and social differences, but also when that placement was largely an act outside of their control? I'm genuinely asking, because I have no idea. Surely, in a culture where it was so widespread, there would have been people with a specific attraction to eunuchs. Is that a sexuality? A fetish? A really dumb idea to try and squeeze it into 20th and 21st century sociology? Well, it's definitely a bit of the latter, but also probably something we should consider. The Greeks certainly commented on a widespread Achaemenid lust for eunuchs, but how much of that was polemic criticism and how much was true is all but impossible to discern. It comes up often enough and with enough specific examples to support it, so it happened. But whether or not it was truly widespread is hard to say. 
We don't have any examples of someone in the Achaemenid sphere with an exclusive interest in eunuchs documented, but that is hard to gauge since we are most familiar with kings and nobles who had an added socio-political requirement to have lots of heterosexual relationships and produce more princes and princesses. As for the eunuchs themselves, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people over more than two centuries of time. They would have exhibited a full spectrum of desires all their own. However, they were also somewhere between servants and slaves most of the time, which means both that we don't know very much about them, and that we have arrived at the unfortunately thorny issue of consent and age when talking about a Caymanid eunuchs. Arguably, true and equal consent is impossible in a relationship with an absolute monarch or a near-absolute satrap. The power dynamic just lends a degree of force to one party that can't be overcome. However, that's so unavoidable in an Achaemenid context that we can't really dwell on it. The darker issue at play is that the vast majority of eunuchs were utterly subservient to the ruling class of ancient Persia. Sure, you've got examples like Bagoas the Elder, but for every one of those, you have a thousand low-level clerks who were sent to Parsa as trade goods and castrated as young children. They were slaves by any definition, save for possibly a strict reading of Achaemenid law. Refusal of a powerful ruler's advances could mean a death sentence. This is never depicted in our sources, which, to their credit, uniformly depict the Achaemenids as abhorring sexual assault. However, the likelihood and possibility cannot be discounted. More concerning still is the relationship between Achaemenid eunuch sexual relations and ancient Greek notions of pederasty. It's come up before, but for anybody that needs a bleak reminder, pederasty refers to an institutional and generally accepted form of pedophilia, typically between adult men and young boys in some ancient Greek city-states, and Rome to a lesser extent. In its high-culture form, pederasty was just one component of a mentor-mentee relationship in which an older teacher, trainer, or non-relative guardian engaged in a sexual relationship with his pupil, typically in the 10 to 16 age range. It's worth noting, for whatever little it is worth in context, that consent on the boy's part was considered an important aspect of this relationship. However, they were still children. Ancient Greek accounts of slave raids and prostitution also make it clear that a purely sexual, low-culture version of pederasty and child prostitution in general was widespread in the Greek world. But of course, the Persians were not Greeks. 
somewhat less organized variations of the same institutional pedophilia appear on and off in the historical record of Egypt and Western Asia all throughout antiquity. The Greeks certainly identified this with their own pederasty, but how much of that is true is often hard to say. We can undoubtedly dismiss Herodotus's claim that pederasty was introduced to Persia by the Greeks, though it's plausible if undocumented that the more Hellenic parts of Anatolia saw Persians, Lydians, and others integrate into that aspect of Greek culture. Various Greco-Roman authors make vague general statements about Persian nobles lusting after handsome boys, without any specific examples. There are probably two developments that make any Persian social norm comparable to pederasty, somewhat less egregious than its Greek counterparts. One is a question of translation. Sometimes used interchangeably, the ancient Greek words paideon and hebe had distinct meanings in a legal and often in a sexual sense. Pideon meant child. In Athens, that was defined as under the age of ten. Hebe meant youth, usually about ten to sixteen. In other contexts, the line between Hebe and the related word ephibos was also blurred with the latter meaning youthful man or an untested or untrained soldier, broadly the 16 to 20 bracket. Both are often translated as a youth in English, but ephibos can sometimes be translated as a young man, which gets confusing when compared to another Greek word, neonius, which is literally a new man, but in the sense of a young man and refers to the 20 to 30 bracket that came after being anaphibos. All of this is relevant because we don't know what the Persian words that ended up translating to Pideon and Hebe and Aphibos actually were, and since none of the three are entirely the same from polis to polis, there is a high probability that a chain of translation could skew translation further from Persian or Aramaic to appear as references to older or younger people in Greek sources. What we do know, though, based on all of our records of the Achaemenid education system, is that Persian boyhood lasted longer pushing the equivalent brackets to youth and young man older in turn. There is a pretty significant social difference between talking about a Persian noble's relationship to a 15 to 25-year-old compared to a boy younger than 10. Whether this translation error is true, or if the Greeks accurately translated what they were describing, we don't know. That said, the few examples we have of Persian nobles engaging in male homosexual relationships with a significant age gap do support the skewed translation idea. Most notably, we can turn to the example of Cyrus the Younger's second-in-command, Ariaios, and his lover, 
the Thessalian Greek general Menon. Menon is kind of an archetypal of Phoebus, a young Greek soldier described as a beautiful youth, but still a leader of armies, probably 20 at least by the time he met Ariaios. Similarly, the Paphlagonian prince Megabates was a paramour to the Spartan king Agesilus during his invasion of Anatolia. Though lower in his army's command structure, Megabates was also a commander, evidently at least what the Greeks would consider an ephibos, engaged with the 40-ish year old Spartan monarch. This once again connects back to eunuchs, as the Greek sources describe both of our named concubines as beautiful youths. Of course, we know very little about Tiridates besides his supposed similarity to Aspasia the Wise, but we do know a fair bit about Bagoas the Younger. Based on his earlier known exploits, Darius III would have been about 40 when he first encountered the eunuch Paramore, who soon fell into the orbit of Alexander the Great and remained with him for the next eight years. No matter which of the young brackets we put Bogoas in, he was objectively well past that by the time Alexander died, and yet still described as a pretty youth. Based on all our other evidence, there is a good chance that Bagoas was pushing 30 at least by the time of his famous dancing competition. The implication seems to be that the Greeks viewed a Caymanid eunuch sexuality as a form of pederasty in and of itself, as objectively incorrect as that might be under any amount of scrutiny. Most Achaemenid eunuchs appear to have lived relatively sedentary, affluent, and peaceful lives, and in the absence of proper puberty and facial hair, this led to them looking quite young for their actual age. What the Greeks viewed as an attraction to literal children was likely not seen as such by the Achaemenids, because... Why would you think of a 30-year-old as a child, regardless of whether or not he still had testicles? Greek understandings of this aspect of Persian sexuality fail utterly in their attempts to grapple with the gender norms and social role of Achaemenid eunuchs. This has all focused heavily on the male end of things, and as much as I'd love to talk about more feminine gender differences and ancient Persian lesbians, there's frankly just not enough documentation about Persian women to say anything beyond the general aspects of women's lives as a whole. They obviously existed, again that's just a question of statistics across any population of thousands and millions of people, but no details I'm afraid. The one thing I can say is that the island of Lesbos came under a Caymanid rule not long after the life of the famous poet Sappho, whose name is the basis for the word sapphic, as in women who love women, and whose home island is the root word for the modern word lesbian. So now I'm gonna play an ad with a half-decent chance that it might be hilariously relevant to this episode, and then 
we're going to shift focus out of the royal and noble courtly sphere of things. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Did you get the ED supplement ad? I really hope some of you got the most sex-related ad I'm ever going to run on this episode. Regardless, I also want to look at some other gender-shifting, transitioning, and non-conforming roles in the Achaemenid world. All across the globe, from indigenous cultures in the Americas, to India, to ancient Arabia, non-cisgender categories routinely took on roles of religious significance. In the Achaemenid world, this primarily seems to have manifested among the priesthoods of various goddesses on the Ishtar continuum that I discussed in episode 95. These were all goddesses which, through a chain of transmission and comparison, were associated with the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, or more accurately in this case, her Sumerian counterpart Inanna. The Bronze Age temples of Inanna represent the first venue in Western Asia where we see the practice of sacred prostitution and a cast of eunuch priests occupying a tertiary gender role. These positions often, 
possibly always overlapped with eunuch officiants called gala operating as sex workers on behalf of the temple. Over the centuries, Inanna was largely replaced by Ishtar, but the gala remained. And over even more centuries, similar religious institutions to the gala appeared in Phoenician temples to Astarte, the Phrygian goddess Kibale in Lydia, Greek temples to Aphrodite, and other goddesses, all of which tended to be compared to either Ishtar or to another more local goddess who was, in turn, compared to Ishtar. Multiple accounts, both of foreigners and from Babylonia itself, make it clear that there were masculine, feminine, and eunuch gala operating as religious prostitutes on behalf of the goddess. However, the eunuch gala in particular are often referenced as having an exceptual devotion or ritual dedication of their bodies to their patron deity. Herodotus made an erroneous connection between the eunuch priesthood of Phoenician Aphrodite, probably meaning Astarte, and another group of gender nonconforming priests in the Achaemenid world, the Scythian Enare. According to Herodotus, the Enare were the result of Scythian raiders way back in the time of the Assyrian Empire who made it all the way from Media to Gaza, on the edge of the Sinai Desert, where they sacked a temple and were cursed by the goddess Aphrodite to become hermaphroditoi. This is the root word for hermaphrodite in modern English, and a reference to a character in Greek mythology called Hermaphrodite, literally a compound of the god Hermes and the goddess Aphrodite who supposedly had a child together, who came out with both male and female genitalia, or in some depictions, a penis and fully developed breasts. Today, hermaphrodite is generally considered derogatory when used to describe people, both because it has been used that way for a long time, and because it is scientifically inaccurate. In biology, a hermaphrodite is a creature that can fully function as either sex. This doesn't really occur in species more complex than some fish and frogs. However, the word originated in ancient Greek to describe people, more accurately described in modern terminology as intersex. Somewhere between 1 and 2% of people are born with intersex characteristics, including internal organs, hormone irregularities, and dormant chromosomes. Only about 0.05% of intersex people have any kind of visibly mixed genitalia at birth. For something so biologically rare, there is actually a relatively large amount of ancient literature referencing and describing it. It is very clearly something that ancient people took notice of. However, on a purely statistical level, the vast majority of Inare would not have been intersex. Instead, of all the various groups we're talking about today, 
These are the people I'd be most comfortable describing explicitly as transgender. Although tentatively, since we don't know very much about them. The Inare are described by Greco-Roman authors as a class of Scythian priestesses that any man who wished could join, and in doing so, become a woman. A degree of caution is necessary here, as many classical accounts also polemically describe the Scythians as a culture of accidental eunuchs who strangled their testicles by wearing pants and riding horses. True enough, tight-fitting trousers and horse riding aren't great for testicular health, but they're not going to functionally castrate anyone. That said, the specificity of the Inare does make it clear that they were probably something relatively unique in their region at the time. A distinct social class of either gender-bending or gender-transitioning priestesses. Unlike the eunuchs of the Mesopotamian temple system, the Inare were moving along the binary instead of existing in a category outside of it. Unfortunately, the bulk of our information comes from the Roman poet Ovid, who did have personal experience with the Scythians later in life, but only after his poems discussing the Inare were already written and circulating. Unfortunately, because Ovid had a pronounced personal dislike of eunuchs and feminizing men. This means it's hard to separate the poet's bias from any factual information, and it's presented in the form of just a few lines of poetry. The most consistent features across the small handful of descriptions we have are that the Inare were assigned male at birth, identified and presented as women in life, were buried as women at death, and were castrated as part of this transition. Ovid adds the additional detail that is the real reason I wanted to get into this. In his book of poems called Amores, or Lovers, Ovid references that the Inare consumed the virus, or as he probably would have said it, virus, of female horses in heat. This is not a virus in the modern sense of a subcellular nucleic acid which causes disease. It is, however, the root word behind that definition of virus. In ancient Latin, virus was just kind of a catch-all for nasty stuff. Poison, venom, foul odors, overpowering odors that could be good in moderation, bitter flavors, slimy substances, sticky substances, just gross-tasting stuff in general, and the genital secretions of animals were all weary, or viruses. Now, if you know a bit of Latin, you probably know that weir is the Latin word for man. As it happens, these actually come from entirely different roots, but there's a good chance that, at least in the sense of genital secretion, 
the Romans and their neighbors might have drawn a connection between Weir, a man, and Weirus, a gross slimy stuff. That last definition, which certainly overlaps with most of the others, is probably what Ovid had in mind when referring to his description of the Inare. But that leaves the question of which genital secretion? Or if it was even actually from the horse's genitalia? According to some interpretations, based on comparison with other broader descriptions of Scythian culture, he may just have been making a condescending reference to drinking mare's milk, a common food product among nomadic horse cultures throughout history. In the book The Prehistory of Sex, Timothy Taylor argues that Ovid's virus is a description of mare's urine, and still others have suggested that it was some kind of ritual connection to femininity for the Inare by consuming the horse's vaginal fluids. Taylor's argument actually contains the most interesting possibilities. While general vaginal fluid has an obvious connection with conventional femininity, and mare's milk fits clearly within Ovid's general dislike of the Scythians, there actually is some scientific support for why the Inare may have consumed urine from breeding mares. Namely, its remarkably high estrogen content. Horny horse urine is actually the base ingredient in the modern estrogen supplement Primarin. These days, Primarin is only rarely prescribed to trans women because it tends to have unhealthy side effects, but it was relatively common in much of the late 20th century, at least in as much as gender transition could be considered common 25 plus years ago. Of course, Primarin is an extremely concentrated form of the estrogen found in mare's urine, but it is plausible that regular consumption could have some feminizing effects. Do not try that at home. There are better, safer ways to transition today, even without prescription medicine. Don't start drinking horse pee. In the prehistory of sex, Taylor actually argues that the Inare would have exhibited the physical effects of this estrogen intake as a byproduct of drinking mare's urine in extreme survival circumstances. There is not much research on this topic to speak of, but in my relatively well-informed opinion, Taylor is so utterly wrong on that count. First of all, there is basically no survival situation where people had healthy horses for long enough to routinely drink urine often enough to exhibit hormonal side effects. If they had horses, they were rarely more than a few days from somewhere with fresh water, especially in the Eastern European context that Ovid and the Greek authors were most familiar with. Also, if the horses had that much urine... They had water! Some kind of ritual context is significantly more likely for how they would have accidentally discovered the hormonal properties. 
Second, the idea that the Inare were unaware of something that was instigating major physical changes in their bodies is a disservice to the Scythians themselves. Despite ancient portrayals to the contrary, they had a fully developed and complex society full of people just as observant as anywhere else in the world at any time. They, like so many other peoples historically treated the same way, were not thoughtless savages. It is unfathomable that centuries worth of Inare priestesses wouldn't have noticed that mare's urine correlated to physical changes and that mares in heat correlated to more significant physical changes. If Ovid's virus is indeed a reference to horse urine, then it very likely was discovered accidentally, but long before his time in the first century CE, and it would have been discovered and understood by some of the Inare. There's even evidence in a text we've discussed before to lend some support to that. The Vendidod, the Zoroastrian law code discussed in episode 60, references how cow's urine was an effective treatment for leprosy. Of course, this can't have been actual viral leprosy, incurable into the 20th century, but many ancient sources conflated true leprosy with a variety of bacterial skin infections, and cow's urine does have antimicrobial properties. Similar assessments and prescriptions of various strange animal byproducts from all manner of species are common in medical texts from across the ancient world. Ancient people lived in much closer proximity to more animals than we tend to today, and they studied them, experimented with them, and generally learned how to make use of the world around themselves. Feces becomes manure, Urine becomes medicine, milk becomes formula, wool becomes clothes, and so on and so on. It is entirely possible that the Inare are just one more example of this, compounding the slightly estrogenic effects of mare's urine on their castration to more fully transition. Speaking of the Vendidod, though, I do want to tie this all back to the Achaemenids themselves and their views on sexuality. When I first discussed the Vendidad, I devoted a section of that episode to discussing its utter condemnation of male homosexuality as the only unforgivable sin. This came back up in episode 95 when talking about how Anahita purified the waters of the woman during heterosexual sex, thus removing the normal taboo around bodily fluids in that context and that context alone. So how does that factor into all this? Surely if ancient Zoroastrians believed that homosexuality was a grievous sin, something in here had to be a violation of it. Well, here's the dirty secret about laws. All of them, past and present. If someone had to make a rule against doing something, then a significant enough number of people were doing it in the first place. 
Sometimes, as in the case of Pennsylvania's bizarre ordinance against sleeping on top of a refrigerator outdoors, the law seems to have been effective in solving the problem. Other times, the legislators were fighting with nature. Rulings against homosexuality, gender nonconformity, etc. are very clearly the latter. There's also the issue that the Vendidot itself is held together by cheap staples and strong feelings. The text is very clearly a piecemeal assembly of fragmentary or poorly remembered sections of Avestan laws put together at a very late point. Maybe as early as the beginning of the Hellenistic period, and likely as late as early Parthian times. Whether or not the totality of ancient Zoroastrian thought on homosexuality is preserved is up for debate, and the answer is likely that it is not. This raises a question about eunuchs. If they were viewed as neither male nor female, then there was an argument that sexual relations with that eunuch were not in violation of the Vendidad. That could potentially further explain the open sexualization of eunuchs in the Achaemenid court. They were a socially acceptable loophole for nobles physically attracted to men. That's just my speculation, but it's in keeping with a long history of technicalities in religious law, both in and out of Zoroastrianism. Depending on when exactly each part of the Vendidad was composed and how widely accepted its doctrines were at the time of composition, there's also a text-based argument to be made that the Persians and Medes just did not have this taboo against homosexuality in the first place. The first book of the Vendidad says that the sin for which there is no atonement, the unnatural sin, apparently referring to male homosexuality, was created by the great evil Angramainu as a plague on Kinenta, where the Verkana dwell. Verkana is the Avestan form of Hyrcanian, and Kinenta is an ancient name for the Georgian River in northwestern Iran, also ancient Hyrcania. So the composer of this part of the Vendidad specifically associated homosexual activity with the Hyrcanians. Notably, Hyrcania is just about as far west as the Vendidad discusses outside of a vague reference to other good lands. Areas like Persia and most of Media are beyond its scope. Whether that's a stylistic choice or because Book 1 of the Vendidad represents a relatively early composition before those regions were Iranized, is difficult to say. If it was an early younger Avestan composition, then the Hyrcanians in question would have been the forebears of the Iranian migrations into the Zagros Mountains, which yielded the Median and Persian cultures suggesting that they may not have had a taboo ingrained against homosexuality in the first place, even if it eventually developed in other parts of the Achaemenid Empire. 
if this passage was a later composition under a Caymanid rule, we know that the royal family itself had strong ties to Hyrcania, both in its own right and as an on-and-off sub-province of Parthia. Darius the Great's father Histaspes, Xerxes I, and Darius II all served as satraps in that region, and it is the most prestigious, unaccounted-for province that may have been assigned to other Achaemenid princes whose political roles are not recorded. Once again, this supports an argument that the Achaemenids did not maintain a strict taboo against homosexuality. Certainly, as discussed at the beginning of this episode, we see examples of adult Persian men engaged in sexual relationships with other adult men and with eunuchs, with or without an age gap. Regardless of anything else, they certainly were not opposed to non-straight sexualities. They actively participated in them. And Until then, if you want more information this about this podcast, go to honest, historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where I'm you'll find things like my, my bio, the bibliography, the podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also bit, find the support page frankly, where you can help out this project financially. Because next that includes time, one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly... Patreon, also found at patreon.com slash history of Persia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.